Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 118, Red Summer, Red Scare. Last week, I concluded the episode detailing how the Republican resurgence in the 1918 midterms proved decisive in scuttling Wilson's dream of joining the League of Nations, and also how it was a sign that the American people were growing weary of the grand dreams that the progressives had been reaching for after enduring years of economic dislocation leading up to the end of the decade. The midterm results and the steady march of the Republicans indicated that America going into the 1920s was going to take a much more conservative bent and turn away from the days of assertive government that had so defined the past two decades of presidential leadership in both of America's dominant parties. But before the political pendulum could complete its swing into the opposite direction, there was to be an explosion of nervous energy as all of America's fears and paranoias and bigotries broke out into the open in a year of violence and recrimination that came to be called the Red Scare in regards to the campaign against suspected communists and the Red Summer when it came to a long rash of violence against African Americans. It is important to know that these were two distinct events. The Red Summer was a result of long generations of intolerable racial oppression building to a tragic inevitability. The Red Scare was associated with fears of communism, spawned by the events transpiring in Bolshevik Russia. The communists there proved they weren't just going away, and their example inspired millions all around the world, especially in Europe and even in the United States. But just as the World War was ending, the prospect of stability that had been promised to Americans appeared to be slipping away, and they did not take the potential denial very well at all. I include them together in this episode because it was the same atmosphere of paranoia and economic troubles that caused them to kick off at roughly the same time. And there was a lot happening in America that was unnerving people. I already talked last week about the rising cost of living badly eating into the material prosperity of the nation, which at this point I don't need to tell you that if you want to scare people, just threaten their wallets. Then there were the ongoing racial tensions with incoming immigrants, many of whom hailed from the eastern half of Europe, and ergo were associated by many in the U.S. with the spread of communism. Anyone of eastern ethnicity or associated with leftist politics was suspected as being un-American. But there was an older racial component to the growing sense of paranoia as well. The industrial boom of the war years created a new demand for labor, a demand that traditionally would have been met with immigrants coming in from Europe. But obviously that wasn't an option during those war years. So, with business owners being the same at every stage of history, they still wanted cheap labor even as worker shortages should have meant wages were being driven higher. But in the U.S., there was a slack in the labor market that I wouldn't say was going unexploited, but it wasn't being exploited productively enough in the eyes of big business. In the first decade and a half of the 20th century, the vast majority of Americans of African descent, over 90% of them, lived in the Southeast, which was a continuation of what had been since their first involuntary arrival on America's shores. But by 1915, it was making less and less sense for blacks to be concentrated in the South. First, there were the terribly oppressive Jim Crow laws that segregated them off from white communities, disenfranchised them politically, and kept them under the constant threat of violence. To go along with those haunting indignities, the South could only barely support its total population economically. It was still primarily agricultural in character, despite the occasional island of industry here and there. And there simply wasn't any money in sharecropping, whether it was in tobacco, cotton, or whatever else the regional specialty was. 
you could raise a hungry and impoverished family, but not a whole lot else. Northern Industries took notice of the extra hands going unsupported by local plantations and started sending recruits in the summer of 1915 to see how viable it would be to convince families to make a change in their lives. Turns out that for folks who didn't have a whole lot to begin with and didn't have a lot to look forward to in the future, chances could in fact be taken. People started raising stakes and heading north on the railways, first in the hundreds and then in the thousands. The collective mass of travel would come to be known as the Great Migration, and it would span decades. This will be a topic I'll be touching on again in the distant future, as the drive of migration was always fueled by the demands for labor. And if World War I created a pressing need for it, then World War II created a frenzy later on. But the relatively humble beginning starting in late 1915 would create shocks all its own. The cliché in America for a long time has been, if you describe something as urban, you're using code to associate it with African Americans. For the longest time, that was not actually the case, with the overwhelming majority of blacks living on farms. And that's where the migrants came from. Cities, especially the sprawling northern ones, proved to be a learning experience. The new arrivals would have to adapt to a far faster, more regimented way of life as they traded harvests for work shifts and let go of the weather setting their schedules in favor of strict timetables. But it didn't intimidate people. They kept coming in droves. This didn't go unnoticed back in their places of origin either. Local leaders, who had worked so hard to establish themselves, watched with dismay as their communities began to shrink. And it wasn't an organized effort either. There were no parties, no advance announcements, four families that didn't have a lot to materially tie them down and constantly lived in fear of being lynched, wasn't much reason to make the event a big deal. There was likely an element of fear, too, that if word got out that they were leaving, then something might be done to waylay them. And just because they had been surrounded by injustice their entire lives did not mean they had made their peace with it. Few would have been under the illusion that in the North they would be treated as equals to the whites, but there was a chance that things would be better. Many among the middle class of black communities would also make their way North as well. For people serving specialized needs, like lawyers or school teachers or grocers, they had to go where their customers were, and that increasingly meant going north. A half million would make their way in that first half decade, cramming into cities that had previously been overwhelmingly white. Tensions arose between established residents and newcomers, not just over race and customs, but over traditional sources of friction like access to housing and social services. Of course, it wasn't long before there was trouble. African Americans were by law outsiders, and the Northern Whites were in no mood to roll out the welcome wagon to the newcomers. Black farmers were entering the industrial workforce, and being strangers in a new environment, they didn't want to be choosy about opportunities to get their new lives actually going. Unfortunately, business owners were well aware of this, and immediately set to work pitting blacks against whites. It was a given in those days that blacks would make significantly less than whites, which automatically made them more desirable recruits. Blacks also had no background with northern white labor to act in solidarity with them, so when whites went on strike, it was oftentimes African Americans that got called in to act as scabs. This did not go over well with the whites, who were already suffering from inflation and likely had only gotten organized in the workplace in the past generation. Their lot was fragile, and now they were being put into competition with a group that they had had no contact with and had been raised to believe they were superior to. It was a toxic mix, and violence was quick to break out. The worst was in East St. Louis on July 2, 1917. 
whites were protesting the presence of black workers acting as strike breakers when a riot broke out. 39 blacks and 10 whites died in the brutal street violence, and the white mob set upon thousands of black homes, setting them ablaze and in a disgusting act of barbarity, even threw a two-year-old child into a burning home to die in the flames. 6,000 African Americans fled across the Mississippi River into St. Louis proper. Despite this coming early into the U.S.'s entry into World War I, and when every bit of industry had to be marshaled, there was no government response to the destruction, and most every white politician declined to comment, even as every prominent black voice was yelling for action to be taken. The incident was contrasted poorly to American war aims to liberate nations being invaded in Europe and spreading democracy over there. The reluctance of white politicians to intervene in the increasingly restless cities of the North was influenced beyond their baseline bigotries by the rebirth of a distinctly American organization of hate. The Ku Klux Klan had originally been an underground society started by Confederate veterans to violently resist Union attempts at elevating the lot of African Americans in the aftermath of the Civil War. Their defenders among lost cause Southern historians would argue they were just trying to maintain the South as it had been previously and their traditions that went along with it. But that's a long-winded way of saying keeping black people down. This original incarnation would eventually disband due to, one, federal crackdowns, and two, the winding down of Reconstruction without properly putting in place protections for African Americans meant that their purpose could be served out in the open without an underground organization. And given that the KKK was actually one group among several to do the underground terror society thing in the aftermath of the Civil War, contemporaries of that first incarnation could have expected the group to fall into historical obscurity. But then another distinctly American thing happened, and the Klan had a movie made out of them. You've probably at least heard the name. It's called Birth of a Nation. It was directed by D.W. Griffith, and the film was a landmark in terms of cinema. Some good, a lot bad. In an age where movies were just getting going and still primitive, Griffith delivered a legitimate epic. Battles were portrayed, the cast was sprawling, and depending on the cut of the film the local theater was showing, it was up to three hours long. The movie is also unabashedly racist, which was noted by those who cared to at the time. In the second half, which is to say the half people talk about, Reconstruction is portrayed. And by portrayed, I mean the movie resorts to fear-mongering scenes of blacks taking over the government, disenfranchising whites, and gasp-legalizing mixed-race marriages. All the while, they're portrayed in the crudest stereotypes imaginable, in the movie being lazy drunks who eat fried chicken. Which is similar to every other hate-mongering playbook in that the selected racial enemy has to simultaneously be an existential threat and also pushovers all the same. Whatever the inconsistencies, the public didn't give a damn and turned out to the movie in droves. The damn thing was a box office smash, only being supplanted on the all-time list by Gone with the Wind decades later. It was the kind of success even that Lenny Riefenstahl could only play at with her own glorification movies of the Nazis during the 30s. Griffith pleaded that the movie wasn't intended to be racist, but the message of Reconstruction being a mistake on account of it dividing the white race against itself so that blacks could achieve equal standing kind of cuts down that argument. Birth of a Nation hit a nerve so hard that a group of whites got together at Stone Mountain, Georgia in November of 1915 to hold a cross-burning that marked the reboot of the KKK. The group's purview this time around was far grander than its anti-Union Southern traditionalist roots. 
The aim was to make it a national organization designed to battle not just against blacks, but also Jews, Catholics, and undesirable white immigrants. This broadened scope meant that it would play to the nativist impulses of the parts of America who felt most acutely under threat by the changes of the past few decades. But their infamous explosion in popularity was going to come a few years later, when the paranoia of America created a frenzy. By 1919, much of white America was jumping at shadows. For years, they had been subject to wartime propaganda about nefarious foreigners, which compounded already existing suspicion of recent immigrants. Heck, it got so bad that the previously vibrant German communities were pretty well crushed within just a couple of years. Whereas previously German immigrants and their descendants kept up their native tongue and traditions, the backlash of war quickly forced conformity. The beer halls were repressed, German social groups were dissolved, and the communities retreated into distinctiveless American culture in order to prove that they were in fact loyal to their country. Books by German authors were burned, and fringe artists like Beethoven were dropped from orchestra playlists. Not to say that German culture was too far from generic American, but even the modest differences were sanded off. It also convinced American Germans to be super patriotic, so if, say, any perceived threats reared their heads against the status quo, they'd be supportive of defending the traditional America. They had good reason to be worried. There were active social groups founded to patrol German-American neighborhoods for any treasonous activity. And it wasn't just Germans, either. Socialists, the international workers of the world, and the American Jewish Congress were hounded for their internationalist politics and resistance to the war. At least that was the case for those first two. The Congress was hounded because propaganda portrayed the Russian Revolution as a Jewish plot. And also because people were just anti-Semitic. IWW organizers were attacked on the streets, likewise any anti-war protesters in general. Eugene Debs, the leader of American Socialism, was arrested in June 1918 for calling on people to oppose the draft. He was convicted on sedition charges for obstructing the war effort. This was all on top of fears about changing demographics from people coming in from Southern and Eastern Europe, as well as that migration of African Americans to Northern cities. Then, the end of the war came in November 1918. The government may have been eager to flex its power in gearing up to wartime footing, but the Wilson administration had no plan for drawing the nation back down to peacetime levels. While Wilson himself was focused entirely on the Paris Peace Conference, the U.S. government was canceling all the stuff that they had ordered. Germany surrendered on November the 11th, and on the 12th, the phone lines in D.C. were inoperable, as the federal government made countless calls to firms across the country that their services were no longer needed. Nine million people were almost immediately laid off as work dried up, and a further four million servicemen were discharged back into the workforce on top of that. It was chaos, and what had been previously perceived as an overreaching government didn't do anything to address it. It wouldn't be a complete disaster, as Europe was still in dire need of American imports, and the domestic market could again make purchase normally after wartime rationing, which kept a baseline level of demand, but it was a stressful and uncertain time. Finding work was hard, and especially for ex-soldiers, the frustrations of coming back home and not being able to start a real life were infuriating. Then there were the frustrations of the African Americans. Believe it or not, most thought their lot in life would improve after World War I was over. Blacks had filled the factories and contributed 800,000 volunteers for service. Surely, Surely, the rest of America would see their value and at least begin to accept them as fellow countrymen. 
Well, that didn't happen. Oh, black soldiers were indeed celebrated as they returned home. They had bands bid them welcome, and white crowds were even there to cheer them on as they marched towards demobilization. But once out of uniform, all the old prejudices reasserted themselves. The disappointment rattled many. Black veterans had not offered themselves up to danger just to go back to second-class status. And the feeling was even more intense among those who had actually seen France. That country wasn't free of discrimination either, but their race relations were a damn sight better than America's. They had come to know what it was like to be treated like human beings, and they didn't want to go back to what they had known. And by 1919, black labor in the war industries were aware as a group as to how they had aided the cause of victory from the home front. People knew their worth. The rest of the United States did not, though. Returning veterans sought out work during the chaotic days of 1919 and oftentimes were directed to head back south when they couldn't get jobs in the industries, a bit of advice that was dismissed out of hand for obvious reasons. Even still, southern employers begged for black workers to come back, as that region desperately missed the cheap and easily exploited labor. Then, on May 10, 1919, the violence got going. In Charleston, South Carolina, a group of white sailors started harassing people while looking for a black man they said owed the money. Eight dollars they had given him for a little bit of whiskey. The sailors eventually stormed a pool hall patroned by African Americans and killed a man. From there, things got out of control, as riots are wont to do, and white sailors poured into black neighborhoods, a thousand all told, backed by civilians who joined in. They broke into people's homes, just wrecking whatever they could, and beating senseless any African-American they could find. Charleston, though, was nearly half black, and a counter-mob was formed, which, hey, you cannot blame them. Marines were deployed to retake the city's streets by proactive authorities, and by sunrise, the city was on lockdown. It was madness and echoed the East St. Louis riots of two years previous, though this time, authorities were quick to put a lid on things. Black public opinion was outraged, whites again tried to ignore it. While dozens of whites were arrested, this was mostly to let things blow over before they were released again. The black press compared this to a 1917 incident in Houston when black troops had mutinied over an arrest of one of their comrades. In that instance, 14 soldiers were hanged and 41 sentenced to life over the incident, which itself had grown into a riot. The incident in Charleston set off a rash of lynchings across the South, with police stations being stormed by mobs looking to obtain victims. All through May 1919, the South was in turmoil as whites lashed out against blacks as never before. Every few days for the entire summer of 1919, there would be fresh news of a white mob hunting down a black victim and hanging them in an act of intimidation. This was especially concentrated in the South, where politicians hemmed and hawed about how the violence was bad, but also impossible to curb, all the while touting the United States as a strictly white nation with the Governor of Mississippi decrying that the French had treated African Americans so well and opening their eyes to the possibilities of equality. This terrible rash of violence would mark the start of the Red Summer. And then on June 2nd, 1919, everything just got worse. A little after 11 p.m., an Italian anarchist carried a package filled with nitroglycerin up to the D.C. home of Mitchell Palmer, the Attorney General of the United States. Palmer was just retiring for the night when the bomb went off in front of his house. Investigators later suspected that the bomber had tripped and detonated the explosive prematurely. Despite the premature blast, the front of the Attorney General's home was demolished. Franklin Roosevelt, as it happened, lived across the street and recalled being jolted awake by the blast, panicked that it might have been his home under attack. The attacker was blown to bits. 
his spinal column crashing through the bedroom window of the Norwegian ambassador's son a few houses down. It was not meant to be a suicide bombing. Ten other attacks were staged that night by the same group with no fatalities. Palmer, though, took the whole thing personally and resolved to root out every bit of subversive activity in the country. With Wilson preoccupied with the peace conference and then with his campaign across the country to sell the League of Nations, Palmer had a free hand to act. He also had ambitions for running for president in 1920, so he figured a national crusade could boost his profile too. Even though the bombers were all obviously anarchists, Palmer blamed everything on a Bolshevik plot, which by June 1919 was all the government and the public at large needed to hear in order to spring into action. Congress funded the creation of a general intelligence division within the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation. The Bureau of Investigation would in 1924 be rebranded as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. And who else to head this new general intelligence group? None other than rising star J. Edgar Hoover. His mission was to root out communist influence, and really any foreign influence in general. Now the Red Scare was underway. It was immediately associated with the in-progress racial violence of the Red Summer, as it was perceived that blacks were in the Bolshevik camp. Even Wilson commented that the surest conduit of communism in the U.S. was in fact with returning black veterans. He specifically pointed to the liberties that blacks had enjoyed in France going into their heads. African-American leaders had initially seen Palmer as an ally on account of his tolerant Quaker background, and indeed, as attorney general, he had worked towards suppressing lynchings. The bombing changed all that, and Palmer dropped the hammer on everybody, completely losing interest in aiding African Americans. Black activists were immediately painted as subversive. It was true that a handful had thrown in with international leftism, but the overwhelming bastions of black activism were with groups like the NAACP, which were entirely focused on issues in America. They vainly tried to pose the threat that African Americans would throw in with the left if denied their equality, but never actually acted on that threat. Unfortunately for them, for white America, desires of equality were equivalent to Bolshevism and would earn no compromise. By June 1919, blacks across America were ready for a struggle. The war had emboldened the veterans. Their entry into industrial work and city living had increased their confidence, and it seemed like the time had come. Calls for reform, such as free voting rights, an end to the culture of lynching, equality in the legal system, and in using public services and employment, these and more were all issues taken up by the NAACP. That group had grown from a tiny 9,200 in January 1918 to almost 100,000 in June 1919. And even then, they were merely the tip of the spear, as the cause of equality was backed further by a well-developed black press and intellectual class, which all came together to press white politicians out of their inaction. They very distinctly did not have a friend in Woodrow Wilson. While he was a progressive who claimed to strive for the liberation of people the world over, in practice that meant white people the world over. He had already frustrated the Japanese on racial equality in Paris by tabling the issue even when the Europeans were willing to make it a component of the League of Nations, and even before that, he had proven a disappointment to African Americans. He came from the southern wing of the Democratic Party, which existed to maintain white interests, and despite his call for social reform, he firmly ignored non-whites. Oh, he talked a big game in his first 1912 presidential election about delivering more to African Americans but they turned around and cut them out of the handful of government positions traditionally given to blacks by Republicans 
and even resegregated federal postings. As racial violence spiraled increasingly out of control in the back half of the 1910s, Wilson stood by and did nothing. This inaction blew up in his face when Washington, D.C. itself endured a four-day riot. The depressingly familiar claim was that a black man had assaulted a white woman. Law enforcement, though, didn't have enough evidence available to press a case and actually released the man. On July 19, 1919, some servicemen from all the branches got talking, and perhaps more importantly drinking, and convinced themselves that the man had raped the woman. They decided to go hunt the man down, which they very nearly did. They chased him to his residence, where neighbors rallied to his defense. The servicemen, around 100 strong, opted to go on a rampage, attacking blacks on the sidewalks. Police half-heartedly dispersed them multiple times, but the crowd kept reassembling quickly thereafter. The NAACP publicly urged that arrests be made to those who had instigated the violence, but nobody would take action. The next day, even bigger mobs formed across town, assaulting blacks and murdering several. Some victims were even dragged in front of the White House to be beaten publicly. By the third day, the 21st, blacks had organized a response and started acquiring guns and rifles, which they used to begin shooting back and seizing streets of their own. Armed groups and cars started roving the streets, stopping to shoot at any whites they perceived as hostile. Leaders in both the city and federal government met to discuss what to do, but again delayed in deploying regular soldiers onto the streets that they had clearly lost control of. After much public pleading from the NAACP, Wilson finally intervened on the 22nd and ordered Washington, D.C. to come under military control. This was technically not martial law, but it was really close. 2,000-foot soldiers and cavalry promptly retook the streets, demonstrating that the violence could have been contained immediately. The official response to the riot was again to say and do nothing. Republicans had a field day with Wilson's ineptitude, and some in his administration floated the idea that the original servicemen who started the riot were actually Bolshevik agents committing a false flag operation. White America had great difficulty in framing the story, as it was acknowledged that the riot had been started by whites, and whatever the bigoted feelings of the day were, everyone knew that it had gone way too far. In addition, there was the matter of blacks actually fighting back, even against the police. Whites were confounded by the resistance. Blacks were fired up and eager to carry the struggle forward. Wilson was embarrassed on the world stage as well, with the Japanese especially savaging his hypocrisy. And while a relatively small number of people, seven in all, died in Washington, Chicago would experience an even more protracted spate of violence. Now, I'm not going to do a play-by-play -play of every riot, but this one was pretty big, so I'm just going to at least touch on it. It started when a black teen was murdered for going to a white swimming pool on a hot July 27th day. For eight days, Chicago was effectively shut down as mobs battled each other across the city. 38 died, and hundreds of homes were destroyed. The situation was made worse by the mayor of Chicago and the governor of Illinois, both refusing to take responsibility of sending in the National Guard. The governor said all that the mayor had to do was make the request, while the mayor said eh, it wasn't necessary, but the governor could send the men if he felt it was needed. Finally, 6,000 troops were deployed to retake the city, and to the troopers' surprise, it was actually the white communities that were the most violent and hardest to pacify. Once again, Woodrow Wilson made no public comment on the rioting. Instead, he focused on his tour to pitch the League of Nations. And once again, black resistance was linked to an overarching Bolshevik plot. 
The rioting would spread across the country, grabbing headlines and shocking the well-to-do who didn't understand how it could be happening in America. Instead of trying to find a way towards a peaceful future, tens of thousands of white Americans flocked to the Klan instead, boosting its ranks as those who were afraid of a future where blacks had equality opted to fight for white supremacy. The Red Summer was only brought to a close in the fall when the public grew exhausted enough of the violence that their politicians felt secure enough to start deploying law enforcement at the whiff of a mob. Ultimately, nothing was truly resolved. Blacks were still segregated, whites still convinced of their superiority, power was still entirely in the hands of the latter. The NAACP and the other black groups would spend years fighting legal battles on behalf of those arrested, and while there were some victories in the courts, to say justice was properly served would be far off the mark. A silver lining was that lynchings started falling out of practice, as authorities started to frown on extra-legal violence for once. 1919 was the high-water mark, with 83 recorded lynchings, although that number is likely far higher, and by the end of the decade, the annual number was in the low teens. Still not great, but it continued to drop until by the end of World War II, it was a rare enough occurrence that when one happened, it was a scandal. And when violence did occur, it was no longer out in the open in the daylight and witnessed by the whole community. While America still undoubtedly had a long, long, long road ahead on race relations, summer 1919 marked the start of a long struggle that extends well beyond the purview of this podcast, and really continues to this very day. But African Americans were from that point forward a more active force in American politics, no longer content to lead a shadow existence separated from the rest of the country. And with so many having left the South, and with so many more set to do the same, it was a force spread out across far more of the country as well. But America's nervous breakdown didn't end with the Red Summer, and the paranoia over foreign agents remained. The poor economic conditions that had triggered the violent tensions between whites and blacks hadn't gone away, and starting in September 1919, it was the turn of organized labor to start grabbing headlines. The first major event was the Boston police strike, in the modern day, police in America typically have unions, but aren't really grouped with the rest of organized labor. Back in 1919, though, it was a whole different story. The Boston cops got paid a salary of 23 bucks a week, worked 12-hour shifts, and paid for their own uniforms. Their pay was worse than even unskilled industrial workers, and they had had it. The American Federation of Labor, the AFL, was in the process of unionizing police departments, and Boston's cops wanted theirs recognized. On September 9th, three-quarters of the police force decided to go on strike. Bostonians being Bostonians, a crime spree immediately broke out and vandalism and looting gripped the city. An ad hoc deputization of civilians failed to curb the violence, and the mayor of Boston begged the governor to send in the National Guard. Unfortunately, the governor of Massachusetts at the time was Calvin Coolidge, who we'll get to know better in the future episodes. Not wanting to overreach government power, which is to say, not wanting to use it at all, Coolidge advised he didn't have the authority to send in the troops. In desperation, the mayor marshaled what guardsmen were around the city and ordered them in, authority or no authority. Peace was restored, once again, much more slowly than what was necessary. Coolidge came around on day three and sent more troops in, and the striking cops concluded that they had let things go too far. They tried to call off the strike, but they were informed that they were all fired and were going to be replaced. Wages were increased, but their dreams of unionization were gone, and the AFL subsequently backed off organizing police unions. Samuel Gompers, the most high-profile American labor leader, pleaded to reverse the decision to fire the strikers, 
but Coolidge publicly rebuked him, saying that there was no right to strike against public safety. Fearful Americans across the country agreed with this assessment, and suddenly, Coolidge had a national profile. An even bigger strike started on September 22nd, when 365,000 steelworkers walked off their jobs. The attitudes of company owners had taken a hard anti-labor swing after the Germans declared an armistice in November 1918, and suddenly there wasn't a war effort anymore. Tensions grew, but even still, the AFL's leadership didn't want to commit to a big strike. Organized labor in America had been crushed in the 1890s, and the AFL was only just building it back up again. The workers, though, voted with their feet, and the strike went forward. Similar to the UK during the Great Strike, the media and politicians sided with the bosses, and even union leadership only provided half-hearted and unfocused support. Ethnic minorities, including tens of thousands of African Americans, were brought in as strike breakers. Local police and hired Pinkerton agents attacked and harassed strikers. The strikers were branded, you guessed it, Bolsheviks. Much as the same as it was later in the UK, the strikes petered out and the workers capitulated piecemeal across the steel belt. It would technically continue until January 1920, but the outcome was no longer in doubt and many of the big unions had long since thrown in the towel. Steel unions were absolutely crushed, and it would take nothing less than the Great Depression and a shocking change in American politics to get it back going again. A similar strike in the coal industry almost met with the same disaster. On November 1st, 400,000 miners went to the picket lines demanding the usual, good wages, reasonable hours, and humane conditions. Unfortunately, by November, the American public was tired of hearing about all these Bolshevik plots, and moreover were anxious about their sources of heat going into the winter. Lack of coal brought economic activity, and even basic services, to a screeching halt for a time. To everyone in power, this was just a coup from below to destroy the government and open it to foreign takeover. The miners were caught a little flat-footed at the public hostility, but stuck out the strike for months. They eventually got a pay raise, but nothing else for their efforts. They would have gone on longer, but they read the room and noticed Congress gearing up to take action against them. After that, they kept their heads down. If you were afraid I would linger over ongoing sagas concerning organized labor like I did in the episodes for the Western European nations, don't worry. The labor movement in the U.S. was decisively clobbered until the days of the New Deal brought it back. Meanwhile, Attorney General Palmer amped up the Red Scare just as the Red Summer was winding down. Having been frustrated by local courts in a smaller crackdown effort on suspected foreign agents in Buffalo during the summer, Palmer launched a much larger series of arrests across a dozen cities using the Bureau of Investigation and local law enforcement in November 1919. It was directed against the Union of Russian Workers, who could be counted upon to be easy targets, most being fairly recent immigrants and also hailing from a nation that was now the world's center of communism. 249 undesirables, most of them bewildered working men who had no idea what was happening to them, were scooped up by the feds, and after token hearings held on Ellis Island, they were sentenced to deportation. The vast majority were part of no organizing effort whatsoever, legal or illegal, and a dozen were separated from their families, left behind on the docks as they were packed onto a rickety steamer and shuttled back across the Atlantic to Russia. The press at the time hailed the departure of the foreign agents, and public opinion was all in favor for more. With Wilson by this time incapacitated by his stroke, Palmer had free reign to do just that. Hoover took the lead on the next round of raids, later dubbed the Palmer Raids, and expanded his scope. Immigrants in 33 cities would be targeted, 
this time against any suspected radicals. Starting on the evening of January 2nd, 1920, some 6,000 people were plucked from the streets in mass arrests. They were held in makeshift mass holding facilities, examples being 400 ship at Deer Island just off Boston Harbor, and 800 people held in Detroit's federal building. The sudden and overwhelming display of power enthralled middle Americans, whipped into a frenzy by propaganda from the press and government. Palmer's star rose overnight, and he became drunk from all the acclamations. That was also the source of his downfall, though, as he was immediately on the lookout for his next big headline. The rest of the cabinet started to become alarmed at his brazenness. The acting Secretary of Labor at the time took exception to Palmer's overreach and began canceling thousands of arrest warrants. Palmer responded by whipping up his friends in Congress to impeach his opponents, but before anything like that could get off the ground, his political position fell apart. He had been publicly warning about an impending uprising in Washington, D.C. by communists, with the date set for May Day, 1920. He deployed troops, the Bureau of Investigation, and had public buildings put on guard. Then the day came, and nothing happened, because there was no coup planned, and there never was. Palmer simply began believing his own lies and wound up making a fool of himself in front of the entire nation. The incident, or lack of one, ruined his chances at higher office and confirmed that the public were no longer interested in witch hunts. What they were interested in was returning to normal, or a facsimile of pre-war normal that they had in their heads. Amazingly, and more than a little alarmingly, the American people were all too happy of banishing the harsh memories of 1919 in exchange for quieter, more prosperous conditions. This was tragic because none of the underlying issues had been solved. The nation's treatment of minorities was just as it had been previously. Organized labor was in disarray, and inequality was still the order of the day. These problems, though, were swept under the rug as white America settled on a Republican Party that promised normality and free commerce, which were to be the antidotes to the excesses of the interventionist Wilson administration. And they got that in the form of their next president, Warren G. Harding, an undistinguished man who just wanted people to get along. Big ambitions were to be tabled in favor of domestic harmony and access to an array of new consumer goods. A new, popular, and terribly shallow age in American life was about to begin. Join me next week as we finally get to the 1920s in America, and as always, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 